States was once hailed as a pinnacle example for democracy, but its credibility has slowly eroded since the turn of the century. Every camp is more and more entrenched and less and less able to find and seek consensus. Since the Trump presidency, that credibility has declined exponentially due to blatant attacks on democracy, financial crises, and increasingly growing political polarization among its citizens. Um, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, South Africa has been quite vocal about the double standards, the international norms and values and democracy. How have domestic issues affected its global credibility, partnerships, and the way budding democracies perceive this deeply divided country and its issues? There are old paradigms at work that have to be updated. There has to be an attitude adjustment. It's not just that it's shifting from one side to the other, it's that uh, the shifts are getting wider and bigger. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, how domestic dysfunction affects U.S. credibility, the view from abroad. Today, we're joined by Dr. Celia Bellin, Ode Darnall, and Ruth Bengiat. Dr. Bellin is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an experienced expert in U.S. and transatlantic affairs, with affiliations at the Brookings Institution and the French Foreign Ministry, as well as being an author, commentator, and member of editorial committees. Ode Darnall is a research associate at the Stimson Center's Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program, with expertise in conflict prevention, civil society strengthening, and women and youth empowerment in West Africa. Ruth Bengiat is an MSNBC opinion columnist, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, and advisor to protect democracy. Her latest book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present, examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power, and how resistance to them has unfolded over a century. Moderating the discussion is Dr. Joanna Gwawczewski. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed by speakers at Network 2020 events are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the organization. So my first question is for the entire panel, but I'll address Celia, you first. How do countries in the parts of the world that you study generally view the domestic difficulties in the U.S., including the recent political divisions over the debt ceiling? Thank you, Joanna, and thank you to uh, Network 2020 for hosting this uh, conversation. Um, this is extremely interesting as uh, this topic is um, is a recurring conversation that uh, you know non-Americans have amongst themselves on uh, have you seen what's happening in the US and how will this affect our relationship to the US? Uh, probably nowhere else uh, more than in Europe where I'm based in Paris and I look at the transatlantic relations and clearly um, we have, uh, you know, we go from uh, in ups and downs and, and, 
and nervousness of Europeans every time there's a political change in the US um, because, and I would say a nervousness that has increased over, um, over the years, in particular because um, by and large Europeans have outsourced their security and their defense to the United States for far too long and therefore are always on the lookout um, to try and understand whether the US will always be on their side. So just on, on that front, I'll give you a few examples of, um, of, of what that means. Uh, we've just published a new study at uh, ECFR that you can find on the website um, that, that you know, was a, a major poll conducted in 11 European countries uh, just published uh, that looked at uh, you know how Europeans feel towards the US towards China and uh, what comes across very strongly is that um, you know Europeans believe they cannot always rely on the US for their own defense so in spite of the fact that we are close to you know 500 days into the Ukraine war um, US support for Ukraine and for Europe's defense is a reality has you know, by and large proven um, extremely efficient and extremely reliable, still, you know, 74% of Europeans believe um, that uh, uh, that the US cannot, uh, that Europe cannot rely uh, on the US uh, long term. And also 56% believe that if uh, Donald Trump were to return to power, the alliance would be weaker or much weaker. So we do have a, a sense of dread over the, the potential um, back and forth. But one point I want to underline is that a lot of it is because, you know, uh, is also self-integration um, and, and self, um, you know, self-censorship. So a lot of Europeans are sort of pre-dreading uh, the domestic divisions because they are, um, uh, you've got a great American democracy that has um, a lot of output, whether it's on the general media or on Netflix or on Hollywood or on any of these other medias that cross the oceans and come to our shores and explain to us how the political system is or is not dysfunctional. And I think a lot of the partners on the other side of these oceans integrate sort of over integrate these um these elements and and try and you know predict the future will donald trump be back in power will the debt ceiling when in many other countries there are many other domestic divisions and there are many other you know big question marks i'm sure in russia and in china and in other countries except we look at them much less and we don't integrate them in our general um uh, approach and so it's 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 just an element of moderation that sometimes we we over interpret uh, every little uh, um, uh, elements, and there are actually, maybe we can come back on this, deep trends within US foreign policy that do not vary despite the political variations at the top. And some of these trends are also elements that we should look at because they, are, they, go, they go deeper than just the divisions.
And then, Ode, can you talk about how the American, the African continent views uh, the dysfunctions in the United States? Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to to this event. Um, so I think first it is important to you know to acknowledge the fact that we'll have a various range of perspectives from across the continent and within countries, you know, across countries and at the different levels that we're looking at, whether it is at the government uh, level, the civil society, uh, or the people on the street, you know. Um, but if we look at um, at the elite level, uh, you know, the academics, uh, civil society, and so on. Uh, when it comes, so when it comes, especially to the debt ceiling uh, deal, I have not heard particular conversations, uh, and it's pretty recent. And even within the United States, you know, when it comes to the impacts of that deal, let's say on um, U.S. international assistance, it's not quite clear how that will impact uh, U.S. foreign policy because we know that there will likely be, um, you know, um, uh, cuts. Uh, in in some areas where they they were supposed to 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 be additional funding, um, but of of course this will uh, be of interest to to African states, especially as the United States um, and the Biden administration more specifically uh, are trying to strengthen its relations with uh, with the continent. But just you know speaking, uh, I think that uh, that. There is, uh, we could say that there is a crisis of legitimacy when it comes to the domestic dysfunctions that we've seen uh, over the recent years, whether it was, you know, um, the attack on the Capitol and, you know, the state of uh, the health of, of US democracy, but also um, the polarization, the political polarization within Congress uh, and the uncertainty uh, of, um, of, uh, uh, Continuity, uh, continuity when it comes to the elections. You know what will happen with the next elections will likely have a deep impact on U.S. foreign policy and on U.S.-Africa relations. So all of these issues uh, are of particular interest. Uh, you'll have different degrees of, uh, uh, you know, I mean the sentiment will be different. You know where you go. Uh, I think that contrary to some of. Um, uh, uh, Af foreign partners like friends who at the moment has a really really uh you know negative uh uh there are some really negative perceptions towards the uh, friends especially in the francophone uh, countries the united states doesn't you know has the let's say the chance of not being in that uh same position and so it has an opportunity to truly engage uh with african uh countries and listen to you know to their demand to their interests uh, um, and 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 really kind of move beyond just you know the great power competition. Um, but again, um, I think that we could say that 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 the legitimacy of the United States on a number of questions, from democracy promotion to whether it is a reliable partner, whether it will be remain a reliable partner depending on the outcome of the elections, are of great interest across the continent. Great, thank you so much. And then now, if I can turn to you, Ruth, you know how. How do the autocratic countries uh, view the dysfunction? Probably a little different perspective. Absolutely. Um, so one thing to note to start off is um, I, I am a historian and analyst of you know, global autocracy, and I truly do view the Republican Party now as an autocratic entity, its methods, its platforms, are in sync and often synchronized talking points with the far right parties uh, across the world. Um, and I use the word methods because 
there was an attempted authoritarian takeover, a violent coup attempt on January 6th. And the GOP has not only uh, not disavowed it, it actually has um, integrated it into uh, its DNA. Um, one year after the coup, the GOP uh, declared the January 6th attack, quote, legitimate political discourse. What that says to me is they, they are saying that violence um, is a legitimate way of doing politics, of dealing with political transitions. They have also one third of the House, the lower you know, part of our parliament, let's say, is composed of election deniers. So one third of the members of the House right now are election deniers. So they've integrated that as well. So this means that um, countries like Hungary, which has a very close relationship with the GOP, the GOP has its Conservative Political Action Conference in Hungary now, uh, Tucker Carlson of Fox News broadcast for a whole week, and, and he would say things, he's gone now, but he would say, should Hungary be our model? So this idea of electoral autocracy, uh, which is fundamental to um, illiberal regimes and governments where you have elections, you don't suppress elections, you keep them going, but you find ways to game the system. That's what the GOP is, is aiming toward. Um, and of course, this builds on things in American history, which is not my specialty, but you know, racialized voter suppression going back to the Jim Crow area, which, where we had a kind of regional authoritarianism, although it's not often recognized as that. So because of this, um, the GOP really, if, if it were an independent entity, its foreign policy, its talking points are part of this kind of far-right international. And it was very interesting that um, right before uh, she took office, Georgia Meloni, the neo-fascist uh, you know, prime minister of Italy said in an interview to the Washington Post that she sees the GOP as a kindred spirit. Uh, I think she said they translated it as um, their ideals and aspirations are like ours. That's very important. Um, and of course, we know all about the uh, numerous ties of GOP lawmakers with Putin. Um, the, and we can see what's going on inside the U US, uh, the attacks against um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the um, reluctance or uh, opposition to funding you know, Ukraine, all those things, if you, if you place them as a foreign policy, um, support for the convoys in Canada that were trying to dislodge Trudeau, all of these things add up to uh, a kind of anti-democratic um, you know, crusade. So we have in the States, it's, uh, Celia talked about dread, I can tell you living here, um, we have, we have a bipartisan system. So this is a big liability. And people I talked to, I, I was on a podcast with um, former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, who's conservative, and was saying, what does it mean to be a conservative anymore? I said that there isn't conservatives don't have they don't foment coups <laughs> that's not what they do extremists foment coups so we have a bipartisan system in which one of the two parties has actually exited democracy so but there's no other place for people who might want to be elite defectors as we talk about there's nowhere for them to go 
So this bipartisanship, which was considered a factor of stability and many Americans said, oh, we're so much better than those other countries that are so unstable. Now it's quite, it's quite a liability. It's a, it's a big problem. Um, so I think uh, the other, only other thing I want to say is um, I also look at Brazil very closely and um, here the, you know, history of the U.S. in Latin America supporting coups, right-wing coups, is having an effect where uh, Lula da Silva, who is a progressive, very much uh, veteran of, you know, struggles for democracy, uh, you know, came in after Bolsonaro, and then they had the January 8th insurrection. So he's certainly not a far-right person. His, he has not wanted to embrace Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a very stalwart fashion. And he's becoming a client of China. So the bad feeling uh, toward the U.S. Um, is, is, of course, being exploited by China, uh, if we're talking geopolitics, to come in and become a patron or um, a sympathetic ear uh, or a funder um, of countries that, uh, you know, don't, they never liked the U.S. and perhaps their faith in the U.S. is less now. Okay, thank you. No, it's interesting because, you know, we think of how different it was with the Soviet Union uh, versus Russia and that domestically the country was unified. Well, now with the divisions, that is a, a different factor in recent years than what uh, previous, um, you know, uh, U.S. democracy versus autocracy. So that is a different factor now. Thank you for pointing that out. And now if I can turn to you, Ode, um, on the African continent, what are some specific concerns of some of the countries that could have a direct impact on their own governments and where which countries have the greatest concerns? So um, I think that, you know, I will echo what we just said, uh, you know, the, the current political instability within the United States is a liability uh, uh, abroad. Um, I think that this, especially, you know, what I mentioned earlier, the uncertainty about U.S. political future and um, its impact on U.S. foreign policy towards um, African states is one of the biggest concern, I think, across the continent. Um, you know, there has been a number of uh, initiatives that have been announced, for instance, in December 2022 during the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. Um, the U.S. Uh, um, strategy for the African continent that was released in August also uh, set the path for a more ambitious uh, engagement strategy uh, and more ambitious policy when it comes to the continent. Um, however, the question now, I think, is how do you go from, um, you know, those discourses to practical action? Uh, you know, we could also mention um, the, uh, uh, President Biden's uh, statements about the United States supporting uh, the UN Security Council reform uh, back this fall 2022. Um, I think that at the moment, from the conversations I've had with uh, a few uh, uh, intellectuals across the continent, what comes uh, quite often is this idea that at the moment, um, we do not, there, there is no uh, um, we currently do not see actions behind 
those words. Uh, many, you know, many statements have been made, but at the moment, there is still no uh, action that are undertaken by the government. And so it is very difficult. I think it is also in the way that the government, US government communicates, uh, strategically communicates around uh, uh, his strategy and his, and his policies. But at the moment, that is lacking. Um, moreover, I think that the other element that is quite interesting um, to monitor is the impact of great power competition, the great you know, the framing of US foreign policy through great power competition and how that play out for the continent. I mean, obviously, um, you know, African leaders will do the best to push forward the interest and kind of play with, play as well, you know, this game and and and, and, and get the interest forward with, with whatever actor that they engage with. But the question is, you know, how does this, uh framing impacts towards foreign policy whether that undermines cooperation in some critical sectors we could talk about climate uh climate security for instance we could you know we could talk about investments uh in critical sectors and so on um and so i think that you know those those two points and, and also um coming back to this question of the loss of legitimacy uh u.s foreign policy obviously focused quite a lot on democracy promotion what does that mean for the continent when U.S. democracy in such a poor state? Um, what does that mean in terms of the policies that it, push, it, it pushes forward through the Department of State, through USAID? Um, what type of legitimacy can the United States have in this context? And I think, you know, it is, it is those are, you know, critical questions um, and difficult ones at the moment for, I think, for um, U.S. political leaders uh um to address um and 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 what's it what we're saying is that more and more african leaders but also just the intellectual elites um the civil society are speaking out of this i mean i think we've seen um since the beginning of the war in ukraine south africa uh for instance uh has been quite vocal about you know the double standards uh when it comes to you know the international norms and values and democracy and sovereignty and inter uh, territorial integrity um so we are seeing as well you know in uh senegal i was discussing with a friend uh from the civil society a uh, young entrepreneur uh who advocates for you know youth engagements uh in 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 governance um he was also discussing these issues with his counterparts in Senegal. Um, what is the legitimacy once more? What concretely, what concretely um, does the U.S. strategy for the continent translate into action? And that we are yet to see, to see, to see, to see that. All right, thank you. So you're, you're starting to see really realignments going on in on the African continent. Exactly. I, exactly. I think it's really, you know, it's really that. I mean, from my personal view is that um, there are uh, ambitious, uh, ambitious objectives. Um, but at the moment, the question is whether it is just a lack of innovative ideas, uh, a lack of know-how. At the moment, we, I'm just not seeing um, translation into actual policies. As a nonprofit organization, Network 2020 relies on the support of listeners like you. If you're a fan of Global Insights, 
we humbly ask that you consider making a donation by visiting network2020.org. It's your generosity that enables us to keep delivering the content you love. From all of us, thank you. And now, Celia, if I can turn to you, because you mentioned um, briefly about the deep trends in U.S. foreign policy that are so much constant. So if you could just talk a little bit about that and also, you know, um, are the European allies uh, worried about uh, facing a less reliable, less predictable U.S. foreign policy? Um, just on that last point, I think um, it's been a while now that the um, U.S. foreign policy is less than predictable, actually. Uh, if you look at the major swings in U.S. foreign policy um, that have occurred, uh, you know, actually, you know, the, 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 the Trump, the Obama, Trump, Trump, Biden swing and possibly whatever comes after Biden, whether in, in two years or in, in six, um, you know, these swings are very big, but you also have to remember, you know, the 90s under um, Bill Clinton and then, um, you know, the Bush administration, possibly only after 9-11, but there's a really big swing in a direction of um, neoconservative interventionism versus another swing after um, under Obama leading from behind, etc. So, of course, it's every time some sort of degree, a, a degree more, but the idea of, of swings is integrated um, because of the, even because of the way the, the, the system functions and because of the bipartisanship that Ruth had um, uh, alluded to, the bipartisanship uh, that has increased with negative bipartisanship uh, partisanship. so now you know the, the every camp is more and more entrenched and less and less able to find and seek consensus so maybe that's the difference it's not just that it's um shifting from one side to the other is that uh, the shifts are getting wider and bigger one of the elements that I wanted to to jump back on before answering your question is what um, both uh, Ruth and Ode alluded to, which is uh, the integration by the rest of the global actors of the constraints of uh, domestic constraints of the United States, including of the US president. Um, everybody knows by now that if there's, you know, there was to be another climate treaty uh, to be uh, voted on at uh, uh, another uh, new uh, COP or other places, uh, you know, the US would not be in a capacity to vote on any treaty. So, Pete, so global actors integrate some of those constraints and, and sort of uh, adapt, but also self-center around it. One of the, the most um, self-censor, sorry, one of the most damaging elements of those swings, in my opinion, where, uh, you know, the decisions that uh, Donald Trump took early on to leave the Paris Agreement on climate change, and then the GCPOA on the Iran nuclear deal, because in both cases, for different, completely different reason, it really undermined the capacity to, to, to continue to have these global um, multilateral deals, whether with you know all the countries in the planet and then the us the major player uh comes out and everything sort of falls apart 
or uh, because uh, it's a, a multilateral element around, you know, the, the, the Security Council members in particular, but then the U.S. is also a central part. In both of these cases, these decisions have been long-lastingly damaging and, um, and very uh, difficult to repair. But then, you know, even an administration coming in, uh, such as the Biden administration, trying to mend the situation, uh, saying, you know, reintegrating um, the climate uh, agreements, but also claiming that the dysfunctionality of the U.S. system prevents them from making still meaningful effort. For example, on climate action, um, you know, two, almost three years into the Biden administration, it's still highly disappointing from the point of view of many other uh, countries on the outside, um, the U.S. is this short of now, I don't know, 12 billion um, uh, uh, dollars uh, that he promised in, in, um, in, in providing towards the 100 billion fund uh, that is needed for uh, the climate transition of, of uh, the global south and many developing countries. When the, the new uh, sort of climate friendly policies are all internal and looking internally at developing um, US economy uh, around green technology and therefore it's not exactly about helping other countries uh, transition towards a more sustainable um, uh, economy so all of this you know uh, and and these were is where we touch on also the more long-term elements of US foreign policy that go beyond the change. The major change, the major rupture, we've talked about them. It's, you know, deciding to intervene in Iraq. It's deciding to get out of GCPOA or getting out of uh, the Paris Agreement. But when you look at what are the trends, three of them are very clear and they go beyond party lines and beyond uh, dysfunction. One of them I just talked about is this sort of reshoring uh, strategic industrial policy that the U.S. has been intent on putting in place both during the Trump administration and the Biden administration is about basically, you know, Biden calls it building back better and 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 um, Donald Trump calls it America first. But it's it's about uh, exercising your economic power and your industrial policy towards your own um, uh, your own development and this has major you know global effects on countries and and there's little expectation that this would change overnight the second one is clearly us china rivalry that has been you know brewing and growing um, started at the end of the obama administration as to be a, a prominent even at the beginning you remember the pivot but really growing and now has taken central stage. No one expects, even if when the change of administration, that this would go away. And the third one is possibly the, the inheritance, the legacy of the sort of post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan element is the, the intention uh, fundamentally to try and not intervene militarily um, in, in, in military um, you know, terrain at, uh, at no point possibly because it also goes with the US-China rivalry. Basically, the US is, is um, um, you know, saving its soldiers. That's a terrible way to say that 
for a potential major confrontation with China if that were ever to happen, and therefore will be quite unwilling and uninterested in smaller uh, military intervention. I think those are like deep trends that whoever is in power, whoever sits in the White House, do matter and do affect the rest of the world and do not change uh, with a, a political shift. Right. Thank you. That's very, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that, I guess that's some predictability <laughs> for other countries. So now I will um, turn to the Q&A box. And there's a question here, and I think I will address it to you, Ode. How are countries in the global south responding to the perceived double standards hypocrisy of the West when it comes to liberal democracy? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's I mean, we've we've heard since the, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, um, you know, leaders taking a stand, uh, you know, against those double standards, um, against what is sometimes perceived as being, you know, uh, bully uh, behavior, um, you know, trying to impose or coher what how how however you want to call it to call it whether it is. Uh, convinced or coerce or impose um, uh, particular uh, a particular strategy uh, of communications on the one Ukraine, whether it is you know between choosing between China, Russia, and the United States. I mean, we've we've heard it, and I think that currently I, I took the example of this of South Africa because it is the one that we've mostly heard um, since the beginning of the war. Uh, in Ukraine, and there are currently still tensions between the two governments, the U.S. government and um, the U.S. Uh, the government in South Africa. Uh, I think it's all you, all you. We've also seen it through the votes, the different votes at the United Nations. So there has again, you know, I want to emphasize the fact that the global South is not a homogeneous block. Uh, you know, you we have different perspectives, different viewpoints. Uh, uh, on this, on this, uh, on this question, uh, but and and so you know it's been uh, also displayed through the votes uh, at the UN uh, General Assembly. Uh, you know, some can many countries voted uh, in favor of Ukraine, many didn't. Um, those votes also change depending on the topic of um of the of the vote so whether it was for the suspension of russia from uh, the committee on human rights uh, uh and so on um but just generally speaking um i think that what we've seen like the the the, the kind of the, the the change that we've seen recently is that global south political actors, uh, whether it is at the civil society level, at the governmental level, are much more vocal when it comes to their interests. And yes, they will call out the perceived double standards. Um, they will push their interests forward, you know, not simply being di dictated what, um, you know, domestic or foreign policy to, to take. Um, they will continue engaging with their different partners, whether it is China, whether it is Russia, whether it is the United States. Uh, you know, some call it multi-alignments, um, uh, but, you know, some call it just standing on the fence. I think that it's not simply standing on the fence. Countries are taking position. They're taking position for their own interests. I think that's the bottom line. Um, and it is likely that this will only continue um, growing as a position. Uh, I think that 
we are in a situation where um you know regional powers uh global powers are emerging it's not just about china or russia it's also about india uh, uh which is taking a stronger uh role in uh, the international community and is trying to you know to kind of be an advocate for the global south it is also about turkey which is also growing its engagement throughout the african continent um so you know it's not just we tend to focus on the big players um, but it's not just about that it is also about south-south cooperation and i think that the growing uh, efforts that we're seeing in that realm um are are also uh symptomatic of that you know the fact that yes uh, more and more uh leaders uh, political actors uh stakeholders intellectuals um uh do want to take a stand for their interests uh um they are condemning um the kind of patronizing stance that um that we can sometime here uh in u.s uh positions um and and uh and and i think that that's critical for the united states and its leaders to to hear to listen to understand uh, understand that this is no longer the United the you know unipolar mo uh, moments. Um, there are a multitude of actors that have the capacity to answer the ne the needs and the demands of African states or beyond. You know, throughout the, the across the global south, um, and uh, and rather than you know just saying this as mere competition. Uh, and trying, you know, to kind of cling because that's that's you know sometimes it does feel this way. It's like um, U.S. government trying to cling to an old, uh, outdated uh, a model, an outdated um, uh, global order, uh, rather than um, uh, you know pursuing such a such a strategy. It's about embracing it. It's about also trying to cooperate. You know, finding ways, uh, finding opportunities for cooperation, especially because we are. You know, in a moment where um, the global challenges needs global solutions, they need cooperation, they need discussions, they need lessons learned and shared from um, you know the south to the north, from the north to the south, from the south to the south. From the, you know, it's 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 not you cannot tackle these issues by yourself, even with the greatest military uh, on earth. Uh, <laughs> you know, hard power doesn't. Um, fix these issues. You need your uh, you need alliances. You need partners. Uh, you need cooperation, multilateralism. And unfortunately, many of the uh, policies and actions that have been taken recently by the U.S. government have been impeding um, these efforts. Um, so yeah. So perhaps the bottom line, you know, I think what's important to say is that um, disagreement is normal. It happens between partners. Uh, it happens, obviously, between adversaries, but that shouldn't preclude um, seeking cooperation, especially when it's crucially needed. Right. Thank you so much. That's a very important point about the multilateralism, that, that uh, the, the world is changing and America does have to refocus how it does business in different parts of the world, quote unquote business. And in the remaining three minutes that we have, I, I just want to actually um, move on move on to what your comments, Celia, were, um, because the final question is, what is the most important message that the United States needs to send out to counter negative global perceptions? What can it do specifically that could bolster its credibility? So if I can start with you, Ode. 
on that on that question. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a critical question for for U.S. leaders. Um, I do believe that there is a crucial need to listen to foreign partners, not simply trying to conduct a strategy that is based on assumptions that are quite often wrong. Um, uh, I think it's important to listen to them. Um, I think it's important for US messaging to move away from, again, as I mentioned earlier, the patronizing tone, um, the moralizing tone as well that we hear quite often. Um, I think it is also important to question that continuous um, great power competition framing, which, you know, as Celia mentioned, is not helpful to for anyone or any global challenges that we are currently facing as a planet. Um, uh, and, and, and those three points are to me capital. Um, I think that the Biden administration has heard um, those complaints from its partners from across the global south. I think it's been uh, a slap in the face uh, throughout the one Ukraine, because those actors, those countries did not react the way that um, the United States or the West, frankly, um, had um, imagined. Um, so it's been a quite a, a, quite a big slap in the face, um, and and you can hear, you know, the change of tone in the rhetoric and the discourses. Um, um, but at the same time, uh, you have quite, you know, a, a, a opposition uh, in the discourses sometimes uh, from some officials. You can still hear that, uh, uh, that you know, backward this kind of discourses uh, uh, trying to impose views uh, uh, and U.S. interests uh, on, on other partners. So, you know, I think it's just important to reckon with the fact that, you know, U.S. In, US interests, U.N. experiences are not that of foreign countries. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, it is normal to have disagreements. It is normal to have competing interests that does, that shouldn't preclude um, uh, uh, opportunities for cooperation. Um, so, so I think that, and even beyond beyond the messaging, I think you know you know communication is important. Strategic communication is important. The message, messaging, the messages, the way it is conveyed is important, and all of this needs to be accounted uh, for by 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 um, American leaders. But most importantly, beyond the messaging, is it important that actions follow? Um, otherwise, it is just empty promises, empty rhetoric. Um, and again, that's, that really undermines US legitimacy and, um, uh, and is, uh, you know, his position as a reliable partner. Great, thank you. And, and Ruth, the same question. You know, yeah, I have to go in two minutes. So yes. I'm, I'm just... Um... I, I can't, it's an enormous question. I think um, I agree that there are old paradigms at work that have to be updated. There has to be an attitude adjustment. Um, I think that uh, it's very, very sad what Celia said that uh, Europeans uh, are not interested, uh, would not be interested, most of them, in helping Taiwan. I think that reflects the inroads that authoritarian propaganda has made. And I think that if we're going to rely on a brutal, uh, repressive, authoritarian regime surveillance state like China to solve our problems for the future, um, we are in truly bad shape. I'm not saying that America has all the answers, but uh, I think as a historian of the total destruction autocracy has brought us, that that cannot be the way forward. 
Great, thank you so much. And Celia, any final comment? Uh, no, I was just reflecting on what Ruth just said, which is a quite interesting part of the paradox of the sort of um, uh, the relativism maybe with which uh, uh, Europeans would look at Taiwan is uh, also a question of lack of trust or confidence that the US on in the US on whether, you know, as you're saying, Ruth, uh, maybe we cannot really count on a autocratic regime such as uh, the Chinese regime uh, to really uh, uh, cooperate fully, but uh, we need to work with every country. And the US, despite being democratic, has proven time and time again that it's sometimes really disappointing, uh, able to really do what's right only for it and not for the rest of the world. So at the end of the day, you know, one of the, the beauty and the frustration of the UN and all the multilateral forums is just that countries have to bring their interests and to work together and try and find a cooperative way forward for global challenges, despite their uh, despite their specific regimes, despite um, despite these situations, because there is no other uh, there is no other real alternative. And when countries neglect the multilateral forums, it's more competition and potentially more confrontation. Great. Well, thank you so much to Celia, Ruth, and Ode for a you know, fascinating discussion. I, we could go on. There's a lot more questions. But thank you so much for participating today. Thank you very thank much you. for organizing this. Bye-bye. We can't thank you enough for being part of this episode of Global Insights. To dive deeper into the world of insightful analysis and to learn more about how you can join our community, make sure to visit us at network2020.org.